This past week, I briefly saw a message on LinkedIn which read, My least diverse interactions in life come in an industry that is one of the most diverse. The author of the article shares his perspective from working for the last 10 years in the front office of professional sports organization. He goes on to reflect on the multicultural aspects of sport, but the not-so-diverse complexion of the front offices and executives of these organizations. For him, there's a huge disconnect. In the last few weeks, I've had several conversations with footballers, both here and around the world, many commenting about the diversity that they felt amongst teammates and in the locker room. And on the outside, there's often found or what looks to be a special unity amongst footballers, with soccer being such a global sport. But we have to realize that soccer is not a cure-all catch-all. Soccer cannot change and heal our world of the systemic racism that we see going on around us. Even if we were to bend all of football's financial support and its global influence toward the work of ending racism, I fearfully know that we would fall well short of the mark. This was driven home to me a few years ago when I saw the difficult documentary, Forever Pure, which details the controversial signing of two Arab players into Israel's Betar professional soccer team. The film chronicles the way that racism not only can destroy an organization or team, but even a society. Well, hello everyone, this is Reb Brad here, and on today's episode of From the Touchline, I want to speak about who our neighbors are, so stay tuned. He's found the space, and he's found the back of the net! Just a little off foot, thinking he's going to go far post, not strong enough with his right hand. Whips that one in, far post, almost made him in, and they have! He has the hat-trick! The second in his career! The third of the night! Hero. Talked about you're not going to be able to sustain that kind of pressure. To the corner, goes towards the near post, and you're the angle, and what a goal! What a goal! One of the Christian Desert Fathers was known for a particular saying, If you are able to revive the dead, but not be willing to be reconciled to your neighbor, it is better to leave the dead in the grave. Abba Agatho, as he is known, was commenting on the faithful person who has great power and great faith, but fails when it comes to the practical outworking of that faith. You see, it's quite useless to claim to be a follower of Jesus, to claim to be a Christian person, and even if you're able to perform all sorts of wonderful things and produce such great work for God, even raising the dead back to life, it's really useless for God if you cannot and if you will not be reconciled to your neighbor. Which begs the question, who is my neighbor? You know, many times as people, we try to answer that question, and there's typically a huge disconnect, maybe like our friend who commented on his experience with the professional sports executives in front offices. The truth is, many of us don't even know our neighbors. Uh, I can tell you from living in U.S. suburbia, we usually drive our cars into our homes and close our garage doors. We go to churches with people of similar backgrounds to ourselves. We live in places where people look like us or where we feel most comfortable. We might try to answer that our neighbor is the person we don't mind being around or spending time with, but rarely do we get a fuller understanding of who our neighbor truly is or truly should be. Now, I've served for many years in football, and I've seen many evolutions of the locker room over that time. I've seen some coaches that come in, and sometimes they're purposely setting up the locker room. They're setting up locker mates. Hey, let's put the Africans over here. We'll put the Spanish-speaking guys. They can settle down in this corner. We'll give the rookies this last section over here. Well, who is my neighbor? Is it a teammate? A locker mate? Is it the on-the-road roommate? 
Who is my neighbor? This age-old question has been asked time and time again, and the greatest response to that question is found in an answer that Jesus gives thousands of years ago. I want to read to you a story from the Gospel according to Luke, chapter 10, verses 25 through 37. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law? Jesus replied, how do you read it? He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. But the expert wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, The one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, Go and do likewise. So let's go through this parable a bit. First, we find the antagonist of the story is an expert in the law. He stands up to test Jesus, and we can tell this by the way he asks his questions. Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, in rabbinical teaching and tradition, it usually centered around the asking of a question. And so we see the aptitude of Jesus as he responds to the expert's question with a question, actually two questions. What is written in the law? How do you read it? The expert comes back, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, what's interesting is that in Matthew 22, Jesus was asked a similar testing question. Someone in the, in the Pharisee tradition had asked him, teacher, what's the greatest commandment? And Jesus' reply in that instance was to put together the Shema found in Deuteronomy 6 and the Levitical command found in in Leviticus 19.18, and to combine the two into this answer of love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. So, it makes me wonder if this same expert of the law was in the room, so to speak, when Jesus gave this instruction to the Pharisees back in Matthew 22. And so, maybe he, here he is in Luke 10, and now kind of feels like maybe this guy's showboating. Maybe he's kind of putting himself up as one who's learned, or he's, he knows the answer at least. So, we can start to understand that this expert of the law has somewhat of a shameless sense of pride because he goes on to ask Jesus another question, even though Jesus has answered appropriately his question, and it really would have been time to give uh, someone else in the room a chance to ask a question. He goes on and asks another question, and he asks this, and who is my neighbor? And now, I'm no expert on rabbinical teaching back in Jesus's day, but just an observation. It's almost like what we're seeing here is a bit of a Wild Western duel. 
The expert challenges Jesus, and essentially he loses his superior position to Jesus by virtue of how Jesus answers him in the first round. So he fires back. And instead of Jesus simply answering the question or even asking another question, he fires off this story that would have astounded his listeners. Let's take a look at the parable because there's quite a few things to be learned. First, we see the expected and the unexpected occur in the story. The road from Jerusalem to Jericho was a dangerous one, and we see that the pivotal character in the parable is a Jewish man who is traveling, and he is attacked and left for dead. Jesus' listeners would have been caught up in the story. They knew the dangers of the road. They would have been aware of the need to travel in a group, to seek protection. They would have known uh, you know, what it would have been like to, to maybe be onset by robbers and such. They, they might have even been able to visualize the very instance and place where such an attack might have happened on the road. But then the unexpected happens. The man's own countrymen and, and religious leaders at that, they don't stop to aid the wounded dying man. We watch as the priest passes by. We see later a Levite who is sort of like a, uh, an unprofessional religious leader back in the day. He too passes on the other side of the road. Both steer well clear away from their own countrymen. Now, we don't know why. Could have been for religious re- reasons. You know, if the priest or Levite come in contact with a dead body or with blood, they would have become ceremonially unclean. But the laws which both the priest and Levite should have known would have placed the value of this person's life over and above the instance of staying religiously pure. So, the listeners of Jesus' parable would have gone on to be shocked because the Samaritan becomes the unlikely hero of the story. And the Samaritan's love and care puts him into this primed up position of being the neighbor to the wounded man. Now, you may or may not know this, but the Samaritan's Jews essentially hated each other. The Jews regarded the Samaritans as half-breeds, physically and spiritually. And they were constantly hostile toward one another. They didn't get along. But look at the Samaritan for a moment. Look at what he does. He stops and administers aid. He takes oil and wine and bandages. Now, I don't know, maybe back in those days, maybe you travel with these things, but uh, I've heard some commentators suggest that probably he didn't have bandages. He probably took his own clothes and, and ripped them up to create bandages. And perhaps the, the oil and wine were, were just part of his own things that he was taking for his own journey. And so he depletes his resources right then and there to help try and take care of this person and to refresh them and aid them right there on the road. The next thing we see is we see the Samaritan struggle and place the man on his own donkey. Have have you ever tried to lift dead weight? It's not easy. And I, I can imagine there was a struggle. I've seen this in certain paintings where you see the Samaritan struggling to put to, to put the wounded dying person on the donkey. Then we read on that the Samaritan takes him to an inn for healing and, and essentially stays with him for the night, looking over him, taking care of his needs. And then when he wakes up in the, in the next morning, he commits to his ongoing rehabilitation and aid, uh, even though it's likely that he's going to be scammed. Probably if he's a Samaritan and he's in Jewish territory and the innkeeper was Jewish, Probably he's going to get scammed for more money at the end of it, but he doesn't pay attention to those things. He goes above and beyond the call of neighbor. And so there's no mistaking when Jesus asks his follow-up question to the expert in the law. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law has no other choice. It's the Samaritan. 
the Samaritan becomes the neighbor. And here is where Jesus is telling us something very important. And listen carefully, my friends. Jesus is saying the one that is most distant, the one is furthest maybe from being your friend or from you feeling that you have anything in common with, even that person is a neighbor. Consider that for a moment. Who is the person you struggle with the most? And why do you struggle with them? Is it because of skin color? Is it due to political leanings? Is it because of their culture or background? Is it because of religious differences? Is it someone who's threatening to take your spot on the team or in the workplace or for some other reason or something else? Now, what does it mean that this person is your neighbor? And more importantly, what does it mean that you are supposed to love them as you love yourself? Jesus lays it out for us that the love of neighbor and the love of God, so intimately intertwined, knows no national boundaries, knows no skin color, knows no ethical differences, knows no social or economic or vocational or religious bounds. You know, last week I challenged us that if we're to do anything to stem the tide of racism, that we must first look at ourselves and understand where our underlying prejudices and attitudes lie. But we cannot merely stop with looking at our own selves. We are called into the nat- to that next step of action. We are called to stepping out and loving our neighbor. And, and it's a love that is not passive. It's a love that cannot sit still or stand by. If we look at the Samaritan's example, the love of neighbor comes at great cost, at great personal expense. And if we simply stop there and ask ourselves, you know, when was the last great cost of our own love? For whom have we expended much? Who have you and I encountered on the road who has been wounded and broken and in need of restoration, in need of reconciliation? And our Samaritan hero here in the story does all this with no promise, no guarantee. The hatred will likely remain. Things will probably not change between his people and the Jews. But maybe, just maybe one day when this Jewish man awakens, he will find that he has a new neighbor. A neighbor who loved him in spite of himself. A neighbor who didn't pass him by, even though he had more reason and more occasion than his fellow countrymen. In closing today, let me pray a prayer so that we might have our eyes open to the needs of our neighbors. That we would not pass them by or slight them. That we would not ignore their suffering, no matter how different they might be from our own selves. And in this prayer, may we be moved with compassion and moved to love that one as our neighbor, no matter the cost, no matter the price. With all my heart, with all my soul, with all my strength, with all my mind, I want to love you, Lord. But I am realizing that my desire to love you cannot go without loving my neighbor. And who is my neighbor? I've had many different ideas about my neighbor, but you are showing me that my neighbor may look different, act different, even believe different than me. So who is my neighbor? Open my eyes to see. The brother, the sister, the one suffering in front of me. Let me not turn aside Let me not pass on by. Let me no longer ignore my neighbor. And even though it come at a great cost, financially, politically, religiously, help me to bear them up, to bandage their wounds and care for them. May I get them to the place of true healing. Help me to love my neighbor. And no matter the cost, 
and without any promise or guarantee, help bring a neighbor that one day may also care for me. Amen. Well, this is Reb Brad coming to you from the Touchline.